crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giraffe can sometimes experience a blood pressure of up to 300 over 180. Now, if you go to the doctor or to the nurse with a blood pressure of 300 over 180, I think they might just rush you into the emergency room right away. That's a high blood pressure. Now, why does the giraffe have such a high blood pressure at certain parts in its body? Well, it has a very long neck, right, kids? And the heart has to pump the blood six or seven feet up to the head. That's a lot of pumping. And so the giraffe has a very, very strong heart. And it pumps that blood with a lot of pressure to get it up to the head, where in the head, in the brain, the pressure, the blood pressure is about what a healthy human would have. What happens when that's all happening well, and suddenly the giraffe decides to bend its head down, its neck down, and pick something off of the ground? Well, suddenly you've got all that pressure not working against gravity, but working with it. And you would expect that suddenly the giraffe's gonna keel over and have a stroke. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of blood rushing to its brain. But that doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because there are all kinds of incredible design features in the giraffe, in the brain, in the way the heart works, and all over its body, which work together to prevent it from suffering a stroke when it bends its head down to the ground. I was watching a video some years ago, I think it was a BBC video, I can't remember, and some scientists were talking about this, and they were very excited about it. And then the one fellow said, this is an incredible design. And then he stopped, and he looked at the camera with this deer in the headlights look, and he says, I mean, I mean this is incredible evolution. But for a moment there, he got it right. This is incredible design. You can see the fingerprints of the creator in this marvelous design of his creatures. If you have your Bible handy, we're going to be looking at a few verses as we go through this article. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. In wisdom have you made them all. We see the wisdom of God in the creatures that he has made. And so the believer responds by worshiping. The believer responds by looking at the creation and saying, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. But the unbeliever, the unbeliever sees the evidence of God's creative glory and majesty right in front of their eyes. And as Paul says to the Romans in chapter 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If you have your Bible handy, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Even the unbeliever can see that the world, that the universe was made by God. God has shown it to them. 
Look at verse 20. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God has put on display in the creation this truth that there is a God, that he is majestic, that he is powerful, that he is glorious, and that he is to be worshipped. It is clear. It's as plain as day. And look at there in verse 21. The Spirit says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Although they knew God. The Bible doesn't give any excuses to the unbeliever. The Bible says, You know and you knew, but you turned your back and you suppressed the truth, and you rejected the creator God who is glorious and to be worshipped by all and over all. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. The cosmos, the created universe, is the theater of God's glory. It's like a gorgeous, full-color, living book of creation and written into every creature in the universe is a testimony to the power and the glory of the Creator. We see the breathtaking beauty of the vivid colors of the coral reefs, the alpine meadows, the glorious sunsets. We see the lumbering power of the grizzly bear and the cute, cuddly softness of a little puppy with big eyes. We see the miracle of a newborn baby And we see the miracle of that mind-boggling process by which a little baby develops into a full-grown man or woman. And when we see that, we worship. I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And then we look into the vastness of the heavens. We see the majesty of God and the galaxies. We see the intricacy and the complexity of the cell and the whole other universe of the subatomic particles. Those atoms made up of quarks and leptons and that glorious diversity of quarks, the the six different flavors and the up and downs and the charms and the strange and the top and the bottom and the red and the blue and the green and the right-handed and the left-handed and you can keep going. All those tiny little particles, there's this massive diversity and complexity in them. And then you have the anti-quarks and I could go on. There's no end to it. And we don't know what they're made up of. There could be orders of magnitude of more sub-sub-subatomic particles. We can't see them. We can't, we can't detect them because we don't have the instruments to do it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so the believer worships You look at Psalm 104 again. Psalm 104, and see how the psalm starts. It's It's a psalm which speaks about the creation of the universe by God and its preservation and its government by God. 
Some people even call it the, uh, the third creation account after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. And so the psalmist continues to worship God the Creator. Look at verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And then look there at verse 8. The mountains rose up, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. God is the one who divided the waters from the land. He is the one who raised up the mountains and lowered the valleys. Then look at verses 24 and 25 again. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, innumerable, living things, both small and great. Both small and great. Does that remind you, kids, of what we read in the Belgian Confession? You see, the Belgian Confession has these little numbers and these little proof texts underneath. And then sometimes right in the Confession, you have these sentences in italics, which are direct quotes from Scripture. But even a lot of the other words, which don't have the little number, they don't have the italics, a lot of them are just echoing Scripture. And so you see there where the Belgian Confession talks about creatures great and small, and that is an echo of Psalm 104. All living things, both small and great. And it all glorifies God, but we're just getting started when we look at creation. We can go on about that for a long time, but there's more to it because the confession speaks not only about creation, but also about preservation and government. And you think of the promise that the Lord gave after the flood to Noah and his family. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we're like, yeah, so we know that, but we have to understand that this is incredibly surprising. The unbeliever believes with much faith that the world is the result of all kinds of random things happening at every level. And yet we don't see a world which is random. We see a world which is ordered, in which day follows night, in which the farmer can plan ahead when they're going to sow and when they're going to reap. There is seed time, there's harvest, there's cold, there's heat, there's summer, there's winter. Season follows season, day follows night. That is God who is maintaining the created order, preserving the created order, the orbit of the earth. And of the planets, the rotation of the earth, the rain cycle, or at a smaller level, the Krebs cycle, which even now is happening in many of our cells, trillions of cells in our bodies right now, that Krebs cycle producing energy from moment to moment that our body needs. This is God that at every moment he is holding all things together. He's making these things work. An electron is not spinning around the nucleus of an atom without God telling it at every moment where to be and how to act and how to spin. 
He's preserving all things. If you look at Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 40 verses 21 through to 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is the one who doesn't just direct and preserve the planets in their orbit, but he is the one that from moment to moment directs human history, who raises up kings and casts them down again. He is the exalted creator and ruler, sovereign over the cycles of history. And then you look there in verse 26 of the same chapter, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. As the sun goes down and the, the evening turns into night, and we begin to see the stars sparkling in the heavens, God is calling them by name to shine in their places. He's got it all figured out, and he's got it all under his control. If the moon would just be a little closer to the earth, or if the earth would be just a little closer to the sun, or if the earth would orbit or spin at a different rate, we'd probably all be dead. But God maintains everything. Even in a broken, sin-filled universe, he maintains everything functioning in a simply marvelous way. Turning back to Psalm 104, look at verse 10 now. Psalm 104 verse 10, where the, the Spirit draws our attention to the providential care of God in creation. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. It is God who, who takes care of the entire water cycle, makes sure it's always happening, the evaporation, the rains, the springs, the sea, and everything that's included so that people can cook and they can wash themselves and that animals and people can drink. And then you look at verse 14. You cause the grass to grow. Now think about that next time you're complaining that you have to mow the, the lawn again. God did that. We heard this morning that we should have a very high threshold for complaining. That was a good point. God makes the grass grow. It's the Holy Spirit who makes the, the things in the garden grow, and who makes the grass grow, all the vegetation. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that makes the, the trees to bud and to come into leaf in the springtime. God is involved in every little detail of our bodies, of ourselves, of the world, of the garden, of the, the jungles and, and the forests and, and the water and the seas everywhere and everything. He is involved in intricate detail making things happen. He's not a God who's far away just kind of watching from a distance. But he's present and he's active. 
If we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 14, verse 15, here Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra, and you remember that the people in Lystra thought that Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods come down from heaven. They try to worship them, and, and Paul tells them off, and this is what he says to them in verse 15. He says, first of all, don't worship us. We're of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, this idolatry, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, here and in so many other places in Scripture, the Bible connects, on the one hand, turning from idolatry and worshiping created things, and on the other hand, turning to worship the living God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Those are the two possibilities. And that's why the, the wicked, wicked teaching of evolution just guts the gospel. Because the evolutionary reading and also the so-called theistic evolutionary reading says this, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who didn't make the heavens and the earth, but he used a process of random mutation and natural selection happening over many millions of years. That's not what Paul's saying, that's not what the Bible says, and that is not the truth. So turn from these things, says Paul, but then see, what, see how Paul calls their attention to the action of God in history in his preserving and governing of the universe. Look at verse 17. He says, listen, you know, you, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying every time it rained, God was saying, I'm here and I'm taking care of you. Every time the crops grew, God was saying, I'm here and I'm providing for you. Every time you had a table full of food and drink and you could eat your food with gladness and joy, God was saying, I am here, I am the Father and I provide, and I have given you these things. Thank me, worship me. He says this to everyone. He did not leave himself without witness. He could be known. And so there are stunning testimonies to the greatness and the glory and the faithfulness and the providence of God. You know, Everything tends to break down in a fallen world. The principle of entropy means that things just kind of wind down. We see it in our bodies as we get older. Things break down. We get more wrinkles. Our bodies stop working the way they used to. We get more pains, and, and we need to see the doctor more often. And we inexorably are drawing nearer and nearer to the dust and to death. And we see that in the universe that things break down. If you leave your garden, your vegetable garden, and you don't touch it for four months, you don't come back to a well-ordered garden full of all kinds of wonderful produce and abundance. You come back to a mess because things tend to deteriorate if they're left alone. But they don't in the universe in, in the, on the larger scale. God upholds the universe. The world spins. The world orbits. The sun and the moon are in their places. The stars come out at the right time. If they didn't, it would be catastrophe. And so the entire universe in its functioning 
and in the provision of God of food and drink and rain and crops and all those things are testimonies to God who creates, who preserves, and who governs. He does not leave himself without a witness. Now, what is true of the universe is true of the crown of creation, the human being, the body. The human body declares the glory of God, the design of the body, how it all functions together, the incredible, unspeakable complexity of all those different systems that are functioning at so many different levels. And it all you can do if you really, really understand how it works or you begin to understand how it works, all you can do is worship God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And it takes a lot of faith to deny seeing the fingerprints of Creator God in all of these glorious things. Francis Crick, one of the co-discoverers of DNA, was like quite a few modern scientists, a, a very, very committed atheist who hates the idea or hated the idea of God. And yet he was forced to conclude that DNA and just the existence of life on earth itself is so complex that there's no conceivable way that it can have evolved naturally or by chance. You see, you speak to the evolutionists, also those that pass themselves off as Christians, and they will talk all kinds of, all kinds of things about the development of life till what we see today, but what they will really talk about is that transition from when we went from no life to life, because that's a massive jump, and it's a jump which cannot be made by natural means. It needs an external agent. It needs an intelligence. It needs a creator. And Francis Crick, one of the greatest scientists of recent history, he understood that. There's no way it could have happened by itself. And so what did he do? Well, he didn't want to come to God because he doesn't want a God that he has to bow down to and worship and who's going to tell him what to do. So he came up with this idea. This is one of the greatest scientists of recent history. He came up with the idea of panspermia, and that means that the universe is seeded with all kinds of life all over, and that aliens, aliens, sent the seed of life to Earth and got things going here. Now, asking where alien life came from, and you're going to run into the same problem. He's not going to have an answer for that either. You see what people do to suppress the truth in unrighteousness? They'll do anything to avoid coming before God and falling down and worshiping Him. Now, some of them are, some, some of them are more honest than others. Anthony Flew, one of the most prominent atheist philosophers of the 20th century, wrote this at the end of his life, towards the end of his career. He wrote this. DNA research has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. And so Anthony Flew, one of the greatest uh, atheists in, in, in recent history, towards the end of his career, towards the end of his life, was obliged to recognize that it is impossible 
to explain the complexity of life by natural means. If you study, if you research, if you look, if you observe, you are driven to the conclusion that life was created by a powerful intelligence. Now, he never got to know Creator God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anthony Flew died believing in some kind of a deistic God, some kind of intelligent God who made the world and then went away and left it running. But he came to in the right direction of the proper conclusion. So there's the universe. It drives home to us the truth which no one can deny that God is creator. There's more. Because embedded into every human being is the image of God. Even in a fallen world, every man, woman, and child is still in the image of God. It's a ruined image. It's a broken image. It's a distorted image. But the image of God is still somehow perceptible. If you were to see a bombed out city after a heavy bombing, you see the ruins, it wouldn't be the original city, but you could kind of tell over here there was a big cathedral and over here there was housing and some mansions and there was, there was stores here. You can kind of tell what it was. And so in human beings as well, you can kind of see. It's not perfect. It's kind of broken down and ruined, but you can kind of see what it was supposed to be originally. Every human being is made in the image of God. And so there also, in the human being, God declares himself as creator. He manifests himself as creator. What does the Bible say, Ecclesiastes 3.11? He has put eternity into man's heart. The unbeliever knows. There's something in the unbeliever's heart. They know that this world is not all that there is. There's something more. We're not just walking bags of protoplasm. There's something more. There's the human spirit. There's something called beauty and, and truth and, and love. And these things are more than physical consequences of a whole chain of reactions and chemical and physical interactions called evolution. Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And every, every human being has that in them. God has put eternity in man's heart. And Paul speaks about something related to that in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. In Romans 2, 14, 15, Paul speaks about those who don't know God. He speaks about the Gentiles, and he says some very interesting words here. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, what is Paul saying? It's it's very dense language here, and we're not preaching this text. We're just going to summarize it. What he's saying is this, that even unbelievers who have never heard of the gospel, never heard the law of God, they are born with a certain understanding, not just of eternity, and, it's, and they don't just have uh, before them the manifestation of the, the glory of God in creation, but in their own hearts, they know something about the character of God. Every human being created in the image of God 
has a conscience, and that conscience is built into them. It comes from the factory. It comes from God creating them. And that conscience tells them, even if they've never read the Ten Commandments, that conscience tells them that it's wrong to kill, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to commit adultery. You go back thousands of years to other cultures far away from God's people, and you read, for instance, the law code of Hammurabi, and you see laws against adultery, laws against stealing, laws against murder. Why? Because every human being knows innately from just being human that there are certain things that are wrong. And that's because we were created to know that. And there are some leftovers of that even in fallen man. And so in that way too, God makes himself known to the unbeliever. They know that there is a, a higher court to which they must respond. They know of guilt. They know of shame. They know somewhat what is right and what is wrong. No matter where you turn in the universe, God makes himself plainly known. This is important. You know, you may grow up going to Christian school going to catechism, going to church, and then you look at the world and you think, well, we know about God because we got the Bible and we know, but people out there, how are they supposed to know? And so we can sometimes think, you know, the whole world kind of understands things one way, and we have our own very special way of, of knowing about the world, which is so different, and how can we expect them to understand it? No, it's the opposite. We know the truth. We know the God of truth. We know the real reality about why the world is here and what is, how it was created how, and what happened to it. They're the ones that have a very strange, twisted understanding. They're the ones that are rejecting what is plainly known from God. No matter where you turn in the universe, God manifests himself to you. You can't run from him. And he says, in the works of his hands... He says, in the way that the human being is built and, and the way that they are, he says, I am God the creator. I am to be worshipped. I am God. You must live your life in alignment with my righteous and holy character. And that's why Paul says, Romans 1 verse 20, so they are without excuse. Now, sometimes in Bible studies and young peoples, we say, what about the tribes that have never heard the gospel? What about them? Is God going to give them a break? Because how, how can they be you know, kept out of heaven and sent to hell if they never got to hear the word of God? Well, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us the answer. So they are without excuse. Every human being knows that they must fall down and worship God, and they don't. And so that's the first part of the article that, we're know, that God is, makes himself known to us through the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Then the second part, very briefly, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. Now notice that, how much does he make himself known through the word? Well, just as far as is necessary for us in this life, so that the Bible doesn't give us an answer to all of our questions. 
You know, if we want to know how exactly and why the devil fell from his high exalted position, the Bible gives us a little bit of information, but doesn't tell us the whole story. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that we're curious about. The Bible tells us everything that's necessary to live for the glory of God and to rejoice in our salvation. But the Bible is God coming to us and explaining things about what we see in the theater of glory, which is the creation. So you think of going into a a art gallery, and you see this beautiful and huge and complex painting, and it's just glorious, it's massive, there's all these details, and it's just so beautiful. And you can see the skill of the artist, and you're impressed at the, the technical aspects, they're amazing. You see how much work was put into this, into this, into this art. You see so much beauty, and, and you, you have the feeling there is a lot of significance, but you're not quite sure what it is. And then suddenly, the artist walks in and is standing next to you, and the artist begins to explain. The artist explains what inspired them to paint the painting. And, and, and the artist explains the significance of the different elements and draws your attention to the themes that run through the painting. And as the artist speaks and explains, then your understanding of that piece of art grows, and you appreciate it all the more. You knew something of the artist through the artwork. You understand the artist even more when they speak to you directly. And that's what God does. The Word explains the picture that we see in creation. The Word explains to us that when he, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, that he created all things through Christ. The word tells us that he preserves all things in Christ, in whom all things hold together. And the word tells us that he governs the world through Christ, Christ exalted, Christ enthroned, Christ king of kings, Christ breaking the seals on that scroll, driving history forward as he sits on the throne of the universe. Now, knowing God, as he reveals himself in creation, is enough to convict us and leave us without excuse. But knowing God, as he reveals himself in the word, in Christ, is enough to save us and to leave us without any guilt or shame or sin. To know Christ is to know the Father, and to know the Father and the Son is to know life. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we confess. Now, do we really believe it? Do we? What is true life? What is eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us, John 17, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what life is all about, to know God. That's living, to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to know him in the biblical sense of the word, no, to have intimate communion in his love. That's what faith is. Faith is knowing God. Now, modern spirituality, you're going to see a lot of this garbage on the internet and in modern pseudo-Christian books, modern spirituality says dogmatism is ugly. 
You don't say, I know. That's, that's not godly. That's not Christian. That's not spiritual. Spirituality celebrates doubt. Who am I to say? If God created the world or if it developed, who am I to say? All I know is that Jesus wants me to be a nice person. Who am I to say if Jesus had to die for his elect or if he died for everyone? Who am I to say? Who am I to, to be dogmatic about these things? And so modern spirituality, it's a pseudo-religion, a false religion, celebrates uncertainty. The most pious people in this pseudo-religion are the people who are the most uncertain. And there are a lot of people out there pretending to be Christians, also on the YouTube channels, that are preaching this false gospel of uncertainty. This is not what the Bible talks about. The Bible says, and we confess, that true faith is a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. In a world full of doubt, we have our faith as a sure knowledge, a firm confidence, which is an anchor for the soul that goes beyond the curtain. It is a rock-solid thing to hold on to, to live in this turbulent world. We know God. And we children of God, we delight, therefore, in studying the complexity of the creation because we see the fingerprints of our Father in all the intricacy and the majesty and the glory of the design. Christians, if they've got any talent for science, should go into it and study it and don't stop studying it. Dig and dig and dig and worship as we discover the glories of God in every aspect of the created universe. That's what a Christian does. Even if you're not a scientist, just in your everyday life, you see the fingerprints of God. You say, this is my father's world. And I see his glory in it. That's the basis of modern science. Modern science developed because of the Christian worldview. Christians who believed that the world was created by God and therefore would have order and predictability so that it could be studied. Modern science would not have arisen out of a Buddhist culture because the Buddhists say everything is illusion. And the, the greatest thing you've got to uh, aspire to is, is getting rid of everything material and just losing yourself in the one. And forget about the illusion of the world around you and the illusion of desires and, and anything else. But it was Christianity which understood that the world made by God would be predictable, would have order. It would not be a random, aimless, arbitrary series of flukes and accidents as the false religion of evolutionism teaches. Now, this teaching, brothers and sisters, that we confess from the Scripture in Article 2 is so important. The devil wants to take God away from you. The devil wants to withhold these glorious things from you. And he does it in different ways. He does it by pushing the lie of evolution so that natural processes replace the divine creator. But he does it in other ways too. He does it with the metaverse. The metaverse, that man-made world of pixels and algorithms where some of the great leading lights of our world today want us to be just lost in that metaverse 24 hours a day. They want it to be our new reality. And in the metaverse, man is great, and man is glorious, and man is 
God-like because you can create any world you want and create any situation you want and create anything you want in any, any way you want. And you can even create yourself, your avatar, to be anything and to do anything. And you are God, and God is nothing. We've got to understand that there are great spiritual battles going on behind these things. These aren't just things that have to do with entertainment and having fun. They are if you look at them a little bit now and again. But if you dive deeply into this and it starts taking over your life, this is a religious and a spiritual problem. Do we want to live is the question. If we want to live, then we, we want to know God. And if we want to know God, we need to throw ourselves into studying reality, not pixels, not fake metaverses. But we want our kids to study the creation in school and on hikes and in personal study to get out there in the real world and touch real things and, and see God's fingerprints in the real creation. And we got to stop, not just to smell the flowers, but we need to stop and, and see how the flowers are designed and how they're pollinated in different ways and in different, uh, different, different manners. We need to, as parents, take the time to show our children the beauty and the wisdom of Father's design and even the simplest things in the front lawn. If you just dig around amongst the blades of grass and see all the different life that is happening there. We, we need to learn and teach our kids to marvel at the creation. Because when we marvel at the creation, we glorify God, we worship God, we know him more and more. We see him in the glory of the coral reefs. And as we watch these, these documentaries of going deep, deep, deep down into the depths where no one has been for thousands of years, and yet in those depths is glory as God has created all kinds of creatures. He was the only one seeing them for so long, but he still made them so gloriously amazing. As we see the grandeur of the mountains, and we see the incredible world of insects, and, and we see the birds, and, and all kinds of aspects. As we see the storm and the power of God as his voice strips the forest bare, as he shakes a little bit of white stuff onto North America, and millions, the life of millions, comes to a screeching halt. As he pours a little bit of water on the Fraser Valley, and life just stops because of a few drops from God's watering can. And when we see these things, then like Psalm 29, all those in God's temple cry, Glory. You know, that's something we need to learn. Even when there's a great catastrophe, a great weather event, yes, we, 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 we've got the anxiety and the fear and the worry and, and the prayers for safety. We've got down that, that down pat. But maybe we need to learn to worship more in the great catastrophes that God visits upon this world. You see, the believer longs to know God, longs to know him in his works, longs to know him in his word. Paul speaks to the Philippians about that. He speaks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You know what that means, kids, the surpassing worth? It means that it's more important than everything else, more important than candies, more important than computer time, 
more important than going on vacation, more important than money, more important than the latest, uh, what do you call those things, game, game uh, I forget the word, those, those little things that you hold in your hand and play games on, more important than everything, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's the most important thing in the world because it is life itself. And Paul speaks about that, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then he goes on to speak about his longing to grow in that knowledge, to gain Christ, to be found in him. And he says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Is that your longing? Is that what drives you? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? I want to know Jesus. I want to know God, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power, the life-giving power of his spirit in my heart, in my words, in my life, in my family, in my marriage, in my work, in my everything. I want to know God, the incarnate word of God who rose from the dead, who turned us from dead idols to the living God. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like when we want to know God? Well, it means this. It means a life of dedicated and committed prayer. It means a life of dedicated reading of the Word and study of the Word. Do, do we see that? You know, when our kids remember us, when the Lord has taken us from this earth, are they going to remember, you know, I used to see Dad so often just in prayer, so often just with his Bible in his hands, just reading God's Word. Is that what they're going to remember you as? Is that the example that you're giving to your children, that I'm giving to my children? A life of committed prayer, reading the Word, study of the Word, attending to the preaching of the Word, and meditation on the Word. A hunger and a thirst for God. I want to know God, and I'm willing to give everything up for that. My health, my job, my life, my family, if necessary. But I want to know God in Christ. Do you want that? Do you know God? Do you long to know him? Do you strive to know him more and more and better and better? Because that's what the eternal life is. That's what when God comes back and makes heaven on earth, that's what life is. It's knowing God more and more and more and more forever. We'll never get to the, the end. There is no end. And if that's not what you're doing now, then heaven is no place for you. If that's not what is driving our lives now, then perhaps our destination is different than we imagine it to be. What do you live for, brother and sister? What is your life all about? And the Bible says it has to be this, knowing God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Amen.